From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado's about to usher in big changes in policing. Perspective today from a police sergeant who testified in favor of the reforms. The police are the community, and the community are the police. And the community has clearly spoken. And I agree. A culture change is needed. Rob Pride of Loveland says he's experienced racism himself. He's a national police union leader. Then we crack open another Colorado cookbook. You've been sharing your favorites. The latest comes from the Hospitality Committee at one of the state's oldest black churches. And an empty Denver jazz club is the backdrop for a vocalist who wants to make it big in a tiny way. Listen, uh, simplicity been trying to box my own brain, but my creative got me swerving out my own lane. Labels wouldn't book me, so I took off in my own This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The rules around policing in Colorado are headed for a big change. That's because of a sweeping bill inspired by the protests against racism and police brutality. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry is here with an update. Hi again, Allison. Good morning, Ryan. This bill does a lot of different things. Is there one that you think will change policing more than anything else? Well, I think, you know, it's going to fundamentally change how officers make that split-second decision to use force, both non-deadly and deadly. And and that's a change. You know, a cop, for example, is not supposed to use deadly force unless they feel like there's an imminent threat of danger. And the way it's been described to me is that cops are going to have to have proof that there was some danger, not just a presumption of that danger. Mm. So, you know, for example, we saw in investigating six we investigated six years of officer-involved shootings that DAs did justify cop shootings, even shootings when the suspect was unarmed, when an officer said, oh, I thought that guy had a gun. And I think from what the legal minds and authors of this bill have said now, that would require proof, proof that the suspect was about to hurt someone. So it's a slightly higher standard. Uh, What else does the bill do, Allison? Well, it requires a cop to have an actual legal reason to stop someone, Uh, body cams for everyone, and after incidents in most circumstances, um, uh, after most circumstances, um, the tape from those body cams will have to be released within 14 days. There's more transparency around the use of force incidents and reporting requirements with cops' names and what happened. And I think this is kind of a biggie. There's more liability individually for cops. So cops could be sued for misconduct and be on the hook for up to $25,000. They have to be found to have acted not in good faith. There was a lot of debate over how much cops should be on the hook. And so that was a result of a compromise. Exactly. Does it look like the final bill will be very different from what was originally introduced? Yeah. I mean, as you just noted, there were amendments throughout, um, mostly an effort to win votes from Republicans and support from law enforcement groups. Um, A couple of examples was giving some agencies a little bit more time to get body cams ready because a lot of them don't have them at all. Um, They did tone down that individual liability for police officers. Um, And they've mostly succeeded in their goal. You know, in the Senate, kind of remarkably, only one Senate Republican voted against it. Um, I could tell by listening to the House debate last night up until 1045 or whatever, that the House is going to be more partisan. There's going to be more opposition, but I still expect it to pass. And also, you know, police chiefs support it, the district attorneys support it, um, and the sheriffs support it. So that's that's a biggie. What's the takeaway here? Like how big a change would you say this is for policing in Colorado? 
you know, from a statewide perspective, this is a fairly large deal because some departments just aren't doing this stuff now. The officers aren't wearing body cams. We found in our project that there are still DAs withholding names of cops who shoot someone. And all of that will change. Uh, you know, in the last few weeks, Aurora and Denver PD, both of, both of which are very large departments, have embarked on some changes individually that are already in this bill. So, you know, maybe for them, this won't be a huge shift. But I think from a broader perspective, this is supposed to fundamentally change how cops approach people, um, how they enact an arrest, and how they use force differently when they go out on the street. And that's not just a gun, but that's batons and other tools in their belt. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, whether this actually does change policing fundamentally, I think we're just going to have to see. You know, are, are police going to be held more accountable when they violate these new policies? Are we going to see more cops prosecuted by DAs when they do something wrong on the clock? Are there going to be fewer people every year who are injured or killed by police? We, we just have to see that. Those are the data points you'll be tracking. Absolutely. Justice reporter, CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry. Okay, now a law enforcement officer, Rob Pride, testified at the state capitol earlier this week. Here's the bottom line. We've talked a lot today about culture, and I could not agree with that more. I think the nature of what we do uh, when we're asked to go out there and put our lives on the line and put ourselves in dangerous situations to serve our community, I think that has taken its toll on our view of everybody and, and I think we have too much of an us-against-them mentality. Pride is a Loveland police sergeant, but he was really speaking in his capacity as a national police union leader. And he went on to declare that a culture change is needed. And, Sergeant, welcome to the program. Hi, good morning, Ryan. Say more about this culture change you think is needed, and are you talking only about police culture? Well, thanks for having me, Ryan. And, that, and that's a great question. The answer is no. I, I think. Um, you know, when you hear the testimony of the families on this bill uh, this week and you hear the stories uh, that have happened, um, and, and not so much just the incidents themselves, but you hear the aftermath and the lack of follow-up and not being able to know what happened to their loved one for some time and those type of things, um, That it, when you hear those things, it's really hard to uh, say that we don't need a culture change. And I, and I think we do. And I, I think we just need to have a better understanding of partnership with our communities. Uh, but in that same realm, I think it's going to take some culture change uh, on the community end. Uh, you know, three weeks ago, we, we, were, we were being hailed as heroes, right, uh, across the state, across the country for uh, our work and response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and in a matter of a day, that narrative has completely changed to uh, what you see now, where uh, the hatred and bile is being spitted uh, across our profession. And so I, I think we're going to have to come together and we're going to need the community's help uh, for that culture change. Uh, and and I, am, I feel very strong that the rank and file officers of, of Colorado are, are ready for that because uh, we want to be the best we can and we want the community to educate us and vice versa. We, we want to educate them about what we do and what we're trying to accomplish. Do you think that unions make it harder to fire bad cops? You know, I've heard a lot of that narrative, uh, Ryan, and, and this is what I can tell you. You know, the, the National Fraternal Order of Police and the Colorado Fraternal Order of Police, um, we, we have constantly had this stance and, and we'll continue to say it. Uh, nobody likes bad cops. 
Uh, and, and the ones that hate bad cops the worst are good cops uh, because they, they tarnish our badge and they make it harder uh, for what we do. But we also are firm believers in due process and firm believers in a fair process uh, when officers are disciplined so that all the facts are gathered, uh, so that all the information is obtained and the officer has a voice in that process to say, you know, what they were going through or what they experienced at that time. Um, so, you know, if, if by due process and representing our officers uh, is, is kind of projecting to the community uh, that, that we're trying to make it harder, that's not the case at all. Uh, you know, police officers have employment rights as well, and we want to protect those. Uh, but we also want to make sure that, that we do not have bad law enforcement officers tarnishing the badge for the rest of us. Does this bill feel overdue to you? In, in many ways, Ryan, it does. I, you know, when, you, when I was hearing testimony uh, on this bill uh, and, and reading some components of the bill, first of all, I'll just tell you, I was shocked uh, to learn that there were still some agencies in Colorado uh, that, that implement a chokehold uh, procedure, an actual chokehold uh, across the trachea procedure. Uh, I can tell you in the 27 years that I've proudly served uh, the citizens of Colorado and law enforcement, I've worked at three different agencies. Uh, I was never taught that. That was never in any of the policies of the agencies I worked for. So to hear that was happening was was a little bit disturbing, and, and we've absolutely got to get rid of some of that. Um, so so in, in that aspect and some others, yes, I, I would say this was overdue. And, and I would also say in, in some degree, shame on us, right? Shame on uh, all of us as uh, law enforcement officers, public officials, uh, community groups for not coming together, identifying these problems uh, and doing something sooner. And, and I think there will be some in the community that, have, that will say, um, we, we told you this. We told you this a while ago. And if, and if that's the case, shame on us for not listening. I want to talk just briefly about body cams. Um, we had a former law enforcement officer on the program uh, the other day who mm -hmm. said that body cams are easy to get around because you just say, oh, I forgot to turn it on or, um, yeah, it slipped my mind. Can you talk a little bit about that and whether you think that's a game changer requiring body cams on every officer? You know, I, I think it's a good thing. I think this whole body camera discussion has been one of the most debated parts of this bill. And what I'll tell you is this. If, you know, with my agency and others, we already have a solid body-worn camera policy that, that requires officers to have that camera on uh, when they're on calls and in contact uh, or making police-related contact with any individuals. And so, I think it really starts at, at the policy level, and I think it starts with the training uh, and, and explaining to officers how important that is on. Um, I think this bill uh, makes it clear what the intent is, and that is, is that police officers have their body-worn cameras on uh, when they respond to these things. Um, and, and that's why we wanted specific language in the bill, Ryan, that, that talked about the, the purposeful, wanton, and willful turning off of your body camera or not deploying with your body camera. There, there's, of course, going to be life-threatening situations that happen immediately in front of the officer or, or when they re, re, arrive on a call uh, in which they may not have time 
uh, to get their camera on, or it's a lot of stimulus and a lot of input and a lot of things to do with, they might forget. Uh, and, and so that's why we wanted some of that language in there. And I think the, the way this policy is written and what the expectation will be, I think it will be easy to see if there's a pattern of an officer forgetting to turn their camera on or not having their camera present. And, and that will be dealt with through, through this law and through what will now be policy in all the agencies. Rob Pride is a Loveland police sergeant and on the national and state boards for the Fraternal Order of Police. It's a police union. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Ryan. It's an important topic, and I'm honored to be a part of the discussion. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Chuck Murphy heads the investigative team in the CPR Newsroom, leading efforts to uncover stories that some might wish would stay in the dark. Our goal is to shine a spotlight on problems that affect society, on corruption that may flourish uh, somewhere, and find the things that people don't want us to find. Look for the work of CPR's investigative team at CPR.org. Coloradans dig out their favorite community cookbooks for our series, The Kitchen Shelf. You know, the kind put together by high schools or service clubs, or for today's episode, by a church. So I have a cookbook called Our Favorite Recipes by the Hospitality Club of my church, Campbell Chapel, African Methodist Episcopal Church. That is Adrian Miller, a voice you may have heard on the show recently in a different capacity. He's head of the Colorado Council of Churches, which works on justice issues. But Miller is also a food writer known as the Soul Food Scholar. And when we asked him to pick a Colorado cookbook that's a staple in his kitchen, he didn't blink. It was going to be this 1984 beauty. Again, our favorite recipes from his AME church. This is the church you grew up in, is that true? Yes, absolutely. In Denver, and describe it for us. It's a traditionally black church on the corner of Humboldt and 22nd Avenues, and so it's uh, in the Five Points neighborhood, and just a wonderful church that I've been a part of all my life. A recipe from Miller's own family is in the book, a lemon icebox pie. We'll leave that for just a little later. No eating dessert first. We'll start with greens. In African-American cuisine, and similarly with Southern food, greens are often seasoned with smoked meat. You can use any greens, collard, kale, mustard, turnip, uh, and then you add some smoked ham hocks and then some onion, garlic, and some red pepper. And you essentially just kind of stew those all together. The recipe was contributed by a woman named Beverly Habersham, who is the wife of my longtime childhood pastor. It just adds more meaning to that recipe. What do you remember from church when you were a kid? What stands out? Um, how it was just a really nurturing environment and encouraging environment. We as kids were encouraged to participate in the service by reading, by being in the choir. I grew up actually in the suburbs of Denver, so I went to a predominantly white school and so on the weekends, I would go to church. So I had this kind of dual experience of being in the white suburbs, but still being connected to the inner city African-American population. So I thank my parents for being willing to continue those ties with the black community, even though we were living in the suburbs. Did you feel like an outsider to some extent then? I did, actually in both situations, because spending most of my time in the suburbs, I kind of acculturated to a white kind of mainstream culture, but I'm glad that got rounded out by having the Black experience as well. So I feel like I was negotiating between two different worlds and taking the best from each of them. What's another go-to recipe for you? 
All right. There's one from my church mother, not my actual mother, but one of my church mothers. Wait, what's, a, ch- is, what's a church mother? Oh, a church mother is somebody who's not related to you, but you think of her as a maternal figure because she is guiding you and she'll discipline you if you're out of line <laughs> when your mom's not around. Okay. And who is your church mother? So this church mother is Minnie Utsi, uh, who is no longer with us, but she is just a lovely woman and she is a great cook. And I love her cornbread recipe. And her cornbread recipe is pretty typical of African-American cornbread recipes because there's usually a certain amount of sugar. And if you're familiar with Southern cooking at all, one of the battle lines in Southern cooking is whether or not to put sugar in your cornbread. Because some Southerners say adding sugar turns it into cake. (laughs) But I have to tell you, almost every single soul food recipe I've ever seen has some sugar in it. How much sugar is in her recipe, in Minnie's recipe? A fourth of a cup. So not too much, but what? definitely noticeable. I mean, you've got to have seen hundreds, thousands of cornbread recipes. Absolutely. From all places. Yes. The fact that this one stands out, uh, that, that's remarkable, Adrian. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with the name of the recipe. It's never fail cornbread. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it's on point every time. You've never failed. Never failed. The only time I failed is if I actually tried to riff off the recipe and do my own thing. Don't try to change Minnie's recipe. I know, I know. I've learned my lesson. <laughs> Chris, we'll post this to CPR.org. Do you think cornbread gets put in a box? In other words, is it actually a more flexible food than just a side in, for instance, barbecue? So the interesting thing about cornbread, at least in African-American cuisine is that it's often a necessary accompaniment to another dish. So if you look back through how African-Americans have eaten over time, sometimes there are quite a few cooks who would not have greens unless they had cornbread. And um, if you go back to the rural South, especially where people are really, really poor, a lot of times they didn't have utensils. So cornbread softened up in the broth of greens or other things actually does the work of a utensil because it solidifies everything and then you can scoop it up and eat it with your fingers. A lot of people back south actually have a dessert where they crumble up cornbread and buttermilk and then drink that. It also reminds me in like Nigerian cuisine of fufu, Mm -hmm. where you have a kind of thick paste and you use that to dip into your food as opposed to a utensil. Exactly, it's the same concept. So you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that having cornbread and greens was just an approximation of what West Africans were doing in their homeland and bringing it to a new context. Fascinating. Adrian, I looked up the mission statements of Campbell Chapel AME, and it says, we are a Matthew 25 church. Are you hungry? We feed you. It says in all caps, are you thirsty? We give you a drink. Are you a stranger? We welcome you. I love that food and drink are the first elements of your church's mission. Uh, Amen. Preach, Ryan. Preach. (laughs) Well, I'm just bringing a voice (laughs) to the words that are created by someone else. But it seems like the perfect faith community for the soul food scholar, Adrian Miller. Absolutely. And if you look at the early history of the church in general, a lot of it was people getting together in homes and having a meal. And talking about their experience. That's where the church really grows. It's really a potluck dinner religion in its earliest iterations. How about one more recipe from the cookbook, Adrian? 
All right. So this is the one that we kids fought over. One of my mom's desserts. It's called lemon icebox pie. And if you've never experienced the glory of a lemon icebox pie, it's very similar to key lime pie. So imagine mm. instead of the lime uh, custardy filling, you have lemon with a meringue, but then you have crushed vanilla wafers of the crust instead of graham crackers. Oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, man, it is off the chain, dude. Tell me about these fights. The biggest fight was who was going to be the first one to cut that pie. <laughs> because when it's set up, I mean, the way that the crust came together is kind of buttery. And, you know, you could stake your claim by the size of the piece you got, right? So we always wanted to make sure we got a decent sized piece. How many siblings did you have? So I grew up with four. I love that your own mother's recipe is in the cookbook. Oh, she has several. My mom was a good cook. And I don't know what it's like in other church cultures, but in black churches, when people are going through the line or the serving line, they'll ask who made a certain dish. And that will determine whether or not they actually get a serving (laughs) or keep going. (laughs) It's the personality, not just the food itself. Okay, the personality behind it. Now, the idea of an icebox pie, there's something so charming about that title too, huh? Yeah. So the way you make the pie is you actually cook it, but then you refrigerate it. So you cook the meringue and everything, brown it, everything, and then you put it in the fridge. And man, I'm just telling you, it is transcendent. Especially in warm weather. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just a great summer pie. What do you think this cookbook says about your longtime church, Campbell Chapel AME in Denver, whose roots, by the way, go back to 1886? Yeah, we have been on the scene for a long time. Yeah, so I think this cookbook just reminds me of community. Uh, It's a very cosmopolitan cookbook. I mean, you would expect just maybe just soul food, but it's got recipes from other parts of the world. It's got uh, Native American herbal cures. And so it just reminded me of the loving and diverse community that I had as a faith community and how that had set me up for success in so many ways. Has it been hard not to go to church in person because like many churches, Campbell Chapel AME has been doing its services virtually? Yeah, that has been a challenge because part of being in a community is actually being able to see people, you know, laugh with them, hug them, find out what's going on in their lives. And so there's a feeling of just disconnection. And just to quote Governor Andrew Cuomo, the challenge of our time is how do we be isolated socially, but still spiritually connected? And that's something that churches and other communities are trying to figure out. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Adrian Miller of Denver is the soul food scholar. For our series, The Kitchen Shelf, he offered up a 1984 cookbook, Our Favorite Recipes, from Campbell Chapel AME Church. Recipes for greens, cornbread, and that lemon icebox pie are at CPR.org. A note that after recording this interview, we learned Miller was nominated to the CPR Board of Directors and will be voted on June 17th. As we head into break, let's hear one of his favorite spirituals. I'm going to sit at the welcome table performed here by Hollis Watkins. I'm going to sit at the welcome table, oh Lordy. I'm going to sit at the welcome table one of these days, hallelujah. I'm going to sit at the welcome table. 
table. I'm gonna sit at the welcome table one of these days, one of these days. I'm gonna be a registered voter, oh Lord. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We continue in the next half hour. Being member-supported carries a responsibility that we at Colorado Public Radio take seriously. I am humbled by the fact that people voluntarily give us money and puts a tremendous responsibility on our shoulders to give you back the best radio we can. It is an honor that people support this service and have done so for decades. I'm membership director Jason Moore. CPR is here because of members who invest in all that we do. Thank you for your generosity. 1970 was a big year for news. Tonight, American and South Vietnamese units will attack the headquarters for the entire communist military operation in South Vietnam. This is not an invasion of Cambodia. The flight of the Apollo 13 to the moon is in serious jeopardy this morning and is not going to make a moon landing. This treaty is not the work of any one country but is in fact the product of all nations which shared our concerns over the danger of nuclear proliferation. The Jimi Hendrix experience is over. The acid rock musician died today in a London hospital, apparently from an overdose of drugs. Do you know what else happened in 1970? Colorado Public Radio went on the air for the first time. And to mark our 50th anniversary, we're looking at the state then and now, This time, I sit down with producer Exandra McMahon to scour Colorado newspapers from 1970 for stories big and small. We used a random date generator to pick six days and then found papers for those dates. Well, Ryan, I don't know. Maybe we should start in chronological order. So the first date in our random dates. I guess that would be mine. March 3rd, 1970. And I consulted the Daily Sentinel in Grand Junction for that date. On the front page, an Associated Press story about a soldier volunteering for his ninth tour of duty in Vietnam. Sergeant Major William Waugh has volunteered for his ninth tour of duty, winning a number of medals during his previous tours, including two silver stars, a bronze star, and two Vietnamese crosses of gallantry, and seven purple hearts. The dateline on this is Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And then I saw a few pages in, Alexandra, the word quarantine. Ha, that seems fitting. In a very different context. This is the Apollo crew that faces a 21-day quarantine after being on the moon. Just to make sure they didn't bring back anything that could contaminate Earth. I didn't know you could bring something back from the moon that could be contagious. Well, the scientist quoted in this says the risk of back contamination is very low indeed, but the extent of hazard is potentially so great that many people are not willing to accept that small risk. Hmm. Now, this was obviously written in anticipation of that mission, which never made it to the moon, but it would have been a different kind of quarantine. I had a lot of fun looking at the classifieds. Did you look through the classifieds in your papers? Oh, a little bit. But what did you find? Uh, This ad for a job. Wanted. Space age secretary. Progressive company has challenging spot for ambitious gal. It's challenging. It's challenging. And I guess the assumption was 
you were a woman if it was secretarial mm. work. Mm-hmm. I don't think that would fly today. No. <laughs> but the story I can't get out of my mind, Alexandra. Hmm. Prairie Dog Nips Montrose Girl. Oh my gosh, what happened? Late reports of a prairie dog attack. Mrs. Marion Davis notified police Monday that her daughter Karen was bitten Saturday when she stopped to pet a prairie dog. The girl sustained two puncture wounds. An attempt is being made to trap the prairie dog. Oh man, now I want to know if they caught the prairie dog. If they caught the prairie dog. Well, some things will just have to be left to the imagination. (laughs) Alexandra, I think you've got the next date. Friday, May 22nd. 1970? Yes, of course. I went to Southern Colorado State College, Arrow. So this was CSU Pueblo before it was CSU Pueblo. Oh, you you went with a college newspaper. I thought we should include a college paper. You know, I worked for one in college and they're important. Student journalism is important. And it was back then in 1970 as well. This must have been the last issue before summer and Uh classes were out because it says... At the bottom on the front page, we'll see you next year. So I was leafing through it, and I found this really charming story titled, Mrs. Mack Retires from Cafeteria. Oh. I want to tell you a little bit about Mrs. Mack. After 16 years of cooking, baking, tasting, and testing as food services supervisor at the Orman Campus Cafeteria, Mrs. Edith McClure plans to take life a little easier. During her retirement, effective last August, she plans to catch up on her gardening, crocheting, and church work at Wesley Methodist. And it goes on to talk about Mrs. Mack's life. I guess she was married in 1926, is the mother of one son and two daughters, all of whom who reside in Colorado Springs. And she's very excited to get to spend a little bit more time with them now in her retirement. That's where you're from, Colorado Springs. That's true. Well, it just so happens that our next date, June 11th, 1970, brings us to the Colorado Springs Gazette-Telegraph. That was its name before it was just the Gazette. They dropped the telegraph. They dropped the telegraph. (laughs) Vietnam once again splashed across the front page. Kong Massacre 70 in Village. But just to focus on strong women once again, this headline, Colorado Women Among Honored Conservationists. Quoting, The increasingly important role of women in the fight to improve the nation's environmental quality became evident recently with the announcement that they claimed eight of 20 American Motors Conservation Awards for 1970, and several Coloradans are among the winners, including Miss Kay Collins of Denver in her unique capacity as the first conservation librarian in North America. She maintains the official library of records of more than a dozen major organizations at the Conservation Library Center in Denver. I thought that was really cool. That is really cool. What an impressive woman. The ads from 1970, such a joy to look through. Oh, Alexandra. yes. The grand opening at 119 East Pikes Peak of Radio Shack. Oh. <laughs> oh, big values now at low, low prices. And you could have gotten a giant wood paneled television, Alexandra, for $74.88. What a deal. Prices slashed to the bone. The future looked so bright for Radio Shack in 1970. June 11th, 1970, from the Colorado Springs Gazette Telegraph. What's next? Oh, let's uh, jump ahead to September. September 24th. The fall. Thursday in 1970. And uh, let's go to the mountains. I looked at the steamboat pilot. It wasn't a big day. 
for news in okay. Steamboat, <laughs> apparently. They've got things like they're listing that day's school lunch menu. Not cooked by Mrs. Mack, but I'm so curious what it was. Let's see. The most expensive thing on the menu is 30 cents. Open-faced chili dog. That sounds good. Mm. Western baked beans, rainbow slaw, peach crisp, and Pleasant Valley milk. Pleasant Valley milk. Oh, I did find a really interesting ad in this paper, though, Ryan. Okay. And I'm going to be honest, when I first read the ad, I had no idea what they were selling. So I'm wondering if you can guess from just me reading from the ad. (laughs) So it says... If there is a better buy than Adana Foundation, it's an Adana Foundation on sale. And this is from Penny's, the fashion place. Do you know what they're selling? Hosiery? Oh, yeah. Very good. Was that what it is? It's kind of like bras and girdles and just like basically undergarments. The foundation of your wardrobe. <laughs> that's apparently what those were called back then. As, yeah. As opposed to like makeup foundation. Right. That's And that's what I immediately thought of. Okay. But then the picture didn't match up. I was like, what are they selling? So this is a sale. You can get two bras for $4. Hey, look. It's the new shape of men's and boys' pants. The shape leg look by Selenies and Pennies. More fitted on top, more fashion below, and only $5.98 to $7.98 a pair. At Pennies, it's the shape to be seen in. My last entry, October 6th, 1970, I checked out the Greeley Daily Tribune. And October is officially when CPR went on the air that year. Okay. Well, the big story for Greeley that day, Smays. Do you know what Smays is? Uh, No. It's smoke and haze. Oh. Smoke from California forest fires is not responsible for the low-lying haze that has been visible to the west of Greeley says Dr. Glenn Cobb, assistant professor in the meteorology department at the University of Northern Colorado. Several weather forecasters on area television stations recently voiced the opinion that the low-lying haze, which extends from near Colorado Springs to Cheyenne, was a result of smoke carried from forest fires raging in California. That apparently was an error. Then there was a story that reminded me of how little things change from decade to decade. The headline, Senate shelves amendment to junk the Electoral College. And even now we are debating the role of the Electoral College in selecting a president. The dateline, Washington, after nearly a month of wrangling, the U.S. Senate has shelved a constitutional amendment to abolish the Electoral College and provide for the direct election of the president. Wow. 50 years later, we're still having the same conversation. The same conversation. I checked out the TV guide for this day in 1970. That's a great idea. Johnny Cash, Don Knotts, Perry Mason, Gilligan's Island, and locally, in the morning, a children's television show called Blinky's Fun Club. Don't forget, sometime during the day, go over to Mother, put your arm around her, hug her, and give her a big kiss and say, I love you, Mother. And when Daddy comes home from work, do the same thing. And don't forget to pick up your toys when you still play with them. Oh, did you kids have a lot of fun today? Oh, I'm glad you did. We're going to have to say bye-bye now. We'll see you about the same time. In the meantime, please, stay out in the streets. Bye-bye. Stay out of the streets, Alexandra. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if Blinky says so. 
All right. I think we've just got one more date. One more date in 1970. Yeah, it's also in October. Uh, this one's Sunday, October 11th, 1970. And I looked at the Fort Collins, Coloradoan. Had to go a couple pages into this one. Red Feather Lakes Fish Harvest, like pulling plug in a bathtub. <laughs> That's a great comparison. Such an image. I know, I know. And I it just immediately that headline drew me in, so I wanted to know more. Last Tuesday, as clouds lowered over the baldies and the workers pulled their parkas about them, the harvest of fish took place at Red Feather Lakes. About time, one of the nine men observed, before the lake freezes. And then it goes on to explain this process in detail of draining the lake and then basically grabbing the fish that are, are left over from the summer season that, that weren't caught by fishermen. All of a sudden, I'm hungry. I wish I wish Mrs. Mack were here to prepare that for us. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> this was fun. Thanks, Alexandra. Yeah, thank you. Producer Alexandra McMahon and I reading Colorado newspapers from 1970 with the help of a random date generator. All this year, we're marking CPR's 50th with a look at our state then and now. Music venues are closed, but NPR's Tiny Desk Contest is still going strong. Unsigned artists submit a video of themselves performing an original song at some sort of desk. The winner, to be announced soon, will perform at NPR headquarters. Nearly 200 entries came from Colorado, including this one from Fort Collins synth-pop duo Vivian. My colleague Alicia Sweeney from Indy 1023 is here to share some of the other tiny desk entries from Colorado. Alicia, it's lovely to see you. Hi, Ryan. This is the contest's sixth year. I mean, clearly circumstances are different in 2020. How did the pandemic affect things? Yeah, there's no tour awarded to the winner like in years past, but the winner still gets to perform one of the coveted Tiny Desk concerts at NPR in Washington, D.C., which is the ultimate prize. Also, it's affected because artists are needing to improvise even more, having less creative and technological resources due to being in isolation, found some musicians choosing to perform solo instead of with their band, mm. And I want to point out a small statistic. There's a little bump in how many entries there are this year. And I think that may be because artists had more time to submit. Like you said, there was nearly 200 entries, which is just a reminder that there are so many talented and hungry musicians in our community who want exposure like this. And it was 176 last year. So that's the bump. That's the increase. Yeah. Okay. There are some names you might recognize. For instance, Oxide Daisy has been making waves on the Denver music scene. Uh, this is the band's submission, If This Is How We End. All our friends have disappeared 
lovely track, and I, I ended the title of the song too soon. It's if this is how we end it. Yeah. From Oxide Daisy. I understand this differs from the indie rock band's usual sound. What did you like about this track? Yeah, so frontwoman Leela Roy's stripped-down performance is what uh, strikes me most about this. And comparing uh, this to her band on stage, she really commands the audience while she's singing, bopping around, playing her electric guitar, but performing at her desk in her home during this isolating moment in time without her band for the contest. It was acoustic, raw, and really let me get to know her in a more personal way. Mm. And this song is newly written during quarantine, as you can kind of hear as you're listening to those lyrics, it, it kind of hits a little bit harder now. If this is how we end it, I read that Oxide Daisy's founding members met at an open mic in Denver. And so I, I have to think that they probably miss that camaraderie. Okay, up next, a hip hop duo from Colorado Springs. While we here, remember that you're amazing, capable of becoming the world's greatest. I'm serious, answer your calling. Listen and accept this awakening. Okay, who are we hearing? And what stands out about them, Alicia Sweeney? Oh my gosh, what stands out so much? Okay, this is the Reminders, and a little history on them to remind you. This is <laughs> MC Big Samir, who was born in Brussels, MC vocalist Asia Black. She was born in Queens. They both ended up and eventually met in Colorado Springs, where they're both children of parents in the military. Huh. So fast forward to them meeting, getting married, starting a family of their own, and forming this band, probably not necessarily in that order. Their musical journey over the last decade has taken them around the world. Kennedy Center, halftime of the Nuggets game, China, even students at middle schools right here in Denver. And I actually think it's the second time that they've entered the Tiny Desk contest. And what stands out about this performance that we're hearing Asia is playing acoustic guitar. This is something new for them. And uh, over the course of the band, uh, they're always adapting in this submission. They're uplifting, very personal, and man, it's so good. The reminders. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I love that they play huge venues and schools. That's so nice. On to The Milk Blossoms, a unique Denver band. And this is a, a delightfully raw submission called Tell Me Something. Maybe that the pandemic is making things just indeed a little more raw with these tiny desk contest submissions this yeah. year. Yeah, this was a song that uh, we, we've played a lot on Indie 1023, and this is surely stripped down. Two of the three members performing. This song is an earworm for me. I always find myself singing that tell me something I don't know part. But can you identify everything that's happening in this song, Ryan? Because there is a lot going There's on. There's a lot going on? Even though it's stripped down. There's beatboxing. Ah, from the Milk Blossoms. Yeah. And is that 
maybe a change from their usual fare? Well, they they always keep the beatboxing going, uh, but it just so seamlessly works with a ukulele <laughs> as well. And the, the, the vocalist has such a beautiful voice. Uh, this is a tune that, uh, that I think really draws me in and watching this Tiny Desk submission, um, they're in the running. They're in the running. Uh, this year's Tiny Desk judges include a rock superstar as well as some up-and-coming artists. Um, tell us about who's listening to these submissions. Okay, so first of all, why he isn't a rock star a la Bono of U2. He's like the Bono of public radio music critics. Yeah. So NPR Music and public radio staffer Bob Boylan, he's one of the founders of the Tiny Desk Concert. Okay, you're equating him to Bono. Bono's not a judge. (laughs) Yeah, right. Bono is not a judge. (laughs) But uh, all the Tiny Desk concerts that you see are at Bob Boylan's desk. But the rock star and idol to me, Brittany Howard from Alabama Shakes. Oh, yes. She also has her solo debut record out last year. She's inspiring and she's watching all these submissions as well. And then last year's winner, Quinn Christofferson out of Alaska, he's watching these. And then Gina Chavez, a Latin pop artist from Austin, Texas, is also one of the judges. So they have a really well-rounded panel of judges that are helping to make the right choice for this year's winner. Okay. To some discoveries you made watching this year's Colorado entries, uh, because We have heard previously bands you know well doing a little bit of a different thing. Let us talk more about Vivian, who we heard in the introduction. Yeah, this is a duo from my hometown, Fort Collins, and features two well-known artists in the scene up north who used to be in a gypsy rock band. So I know this gypsy rock band, but I did not know Vivian until recently. Once that old band broke up, uh, the front man, Tim Massa, he made a 180 from what he does musically, and he starts making electronic music. And then a former band member listens to this electronic music he's posting online, and she's like, hey, I can write some lyrics to this. And that's how it started. Then they fell in love. And they recorded this during quarantine. Vivian there. Another discovery, Brionne Onye, and this video looks like it was filmed in an actual music club. The video was recorded at Live at Jack's, which the name probably sounds familiar to locals. It's a beloved institution in downtown Denver known for its support of jazz artists. And I do have to mention Live at Jack's is the first venue to announce that it couldn't survive the pandemic. Oh. So it closed a few weeks back. So for us locals, that's just something to reflect on as you watch her entry. But uh, Brion Anye, musical discovery for me this year. And I, I love this song in particular because it's just a reminder about our humanness. She has this lyric in there that's really catchy. I got whatever I want, whatever I need. Yeah. 
Simplicity been trying to box my own brain. But my creative got me swerving out my own lane. Labels wouldn't book me, so I took off in my own plane. Locked me out the building, I got hammers, built my own stage. I fly in my own space, follow my own trace. I am my only competition of my own race. NPR will announce a tiny desk winner very soon. Until then, they have elevated some recent submissions, including videos featuring animals. There were some goats, horses, bulls, chickens. Your picks include a four-legged friend. Tell us about the entry from Glass Cases. Ah, Glass Cases, native Colorado trio. There's a lot of things that drew me to this video. First of all, I spy the drummer wearing an Indy 1023 t-shirt, so (laughs) bonus points right there. But the video is filmed while each of the members are in quarantine, so you see them split-screened in each of their homes. And the lead vocalist, Austin's wife, Lindsay, lends her vocals to this song, and their dog, Sophie, makes an appearance during it. Alicia, thanks for introducing us to some new names and some perhaps older names doing new stuff. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Once again, music from Glass Cases. You can hear Alicia Sweeney weekdays on Indie 1023. NPR Music will announce the Tiny Desk winner in the coming weeks. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks to the team that brings this show to air. Carl Bielek. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Avery Lill. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Natasha Watts. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs> <laughs>